Uh, my name is Nalin, and I'm going to read um, from the Word of God, um, Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. It's around um, page 1228 for in the Pew Bibles. And can I encourage all of us to just um, uh, keep, keep, keep these verses handy because I'm sure John will be referring to these verses in his preaching. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so I will be fearlessly made known in the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. Thank you, Narlene and Margaret, for praying for us. Now, this morning we'll be looking at our final talk in our series on the church, God's design and purpose, uh, which means that next week we'll be starting on a new series, and we'll be starting on the series on Isaiah next week, and we'll be looking at chapters 40 to 66 in the next uh, 12 or so weeks. And so a great way to prepare for that is to read read ahead, uh, read uh, Isaiah, the whole book if, if possible, but at least read uh, Isaiah 40, which is what we'll be looking at next week. Uh, but today we'll be looking at this final part of Ephesians and this topic of the church. Uh, let's, let's again join our hearts in prayer. Lord God, we pray now that you'll teach us your truth, that we might love you and love your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you heard of the story of Jack? Jack was coming to church one day and a preacher like most preachers and ministers at the end of the church service is at the door greeting members as they were leaving and Jack came to the door and when he was leaving the preacher grabbed him, pulled him aside and he said to Jack, you need to join the army of the Lord. 
Jack replied. Well, I'm already in the army of the Lord, Pastor. But then the pastor questioned him. Well, how, how come I only see you sometimes, only at Easter and Christmas? And then Jack whispered in his pastor's ear, I'm in the secret service. <laughs> now, whether that story was true or not, don't you find it interesting that the pastor would ask Jack, are you in the army of the Lord? Now, why would he ask that? I thought being a Christian means being peaceful and merciful and loving and compassionate, not join an army. But you see, the language of being a soldier, the language of going to battle, going to war, it does come from the Bible. But why? Well, we see it in many places, like 2 Corinthians. We read this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. I mean, that's speaking about war and about battle and about weapons. We also sing about it. We sang about it this morning. Onward, Christian soldiers. And as if you were reflecting on the lyrics, it's all about war and fighting and battle. Why? Tonight we'll sing another hymn. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. And if you know those li lyrics, ye soldiers of the Lord, lift up his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. But also, one of the most famous or well-known denominations is described as an army. What denomination is that? The Salvation Army. That's right. They're ministers there. They're not called reverence or just ministers. They hold military ranks, captains and colonels in general. And so my question for us this morning is, are we at war or are we not? Are we in a battle or are we not? Are we in the army of the Lord or are we not? Because if we are in a battle, if we're in a war, then we better know what we're up against. But if we're not, well, let's just not speak about this and scare each other. And so what is it? Well, I suspect you know the answer already. It's in the title of this talk. The last talk in our series, The Church God Protects. You see, the church needs God's protecting because there is, in fact, danger ahead. A danger that you and I are facing each and every day. And a danger that you and I are not equipped for. And so, this is the church God protects. We need God's protection. And in this passage, let me encourage you, as we were encouraged before, keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 6. We will be working through those verses. The Apostle Paul, in this passage, he was under no illusion about the ongoing battle and fight and conflict that Christians are in. We are, in fact, in a battle. We are in a battle. You see, it's so easy, isn't it, as Christians to just live life, to go with the flow and flow with the seasons, like it just doesn't matter, we just go on. But you see, the Apostle Paul here, he's not mucking around here about the Christian life. There is a spiritual battle that is raging. It's raging. A battle for our minds. You see, what's happening in our minds each and every day? Will I be pure? Will I think right thoughts? Will I think God's thoughts after him? Or will I believe in lies, deceit, and be deceived? 
It's a battle for our hearts and our desires. Will I be righteous? Will I love God? Will I love what's holy and good? Or will my heart be darkened and be deceived and depraved? And it's also a battle for our worship. Will I only, each and every single day, worship only the one true God? Or will I worship created things, imagined things, or just anything? You see, the physical world is not all there is in our world. We're not just merely atoms and carbon and matter. But there is a spiritual reality that remains unseen. And it is on that level that this battle is raging. And so we the church, remember the church means the gathering of the people of God. We the church are in this battle. And this is what the Apostle Paul here urges us here to, to find strength, to find and draw strength from God himself. Have a look at verse 10. We read here, Finally, be strong. Or, or the word there is be strengthened. That is, it's not my own willpower, but I'm to find strength from God. Be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, just like any soldier, you, you need to be strong as a soldier, but you also need protection. If you're in the Australian Army, you'll be kitted up with the whole soldier's ensemble, their combat ensemble, a modular body armour system, assault packs, a combat helmet, night vision goggles and the works. But you see, the battle that we're in is not physical. It is spiritual. We need a different type of protection. And that's why we read in verse 11. Have a look. We are to put on the full armour of God. We are in a battle. That is the reality. But whom are we battling against? Who is our enemy? Who are we fighting? You see, the, the, the enemy are not just are not people, in fact. If, if our fight was against people, then we will need rifles and bazookas and attack helicopters, and that's what you'll need. But our real enemy that we see here, that we're up against, may come as a shock to many of us here this morning. Because our enemy are not people, not flesh and blood and bones, but our enemy is the devil himself. The demonic forces of Satan and his angels, that is our enemy. He attacks, he seduces, he tempts, he besieges us, and he continues to fight. That is our enemy. Now, hearing this this morning, I suspect some of us here might be thinking, I mean, this is crazy stuff. Do you mean the devil is real? Now, what's fascinating is that in the vast majority of the world, especially in the Eastern world, the African countries and South American countries, they already believe that there are spirits and evil spirits. It's really only in parts of the Western commercialized materialistic world that we deny his existence. Which, if you think about it, if we deny the devil's existence, that is his best way of scheming of helping us think that he does not exist and he's wreaking havoc. He's scheming and deceiving. And so you see, the fight of Christians, it's not against people, but it's ultimately against Satan. 
And if it's against Satan, there's no way we can stand a chance. Who are you and who am I to fight against Satan and his demons? And that is why we need the armour of God. And so verse 11 again. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You see, our enemies are demonic and they're cunning like a fox, scheming. Now, how might that look? Well, we probably sense it, feel it each and every day. How? By getting a foothold when we get angry. You know, when you get angry and your blood is boiling, and then you get the seeds of thought, you better get that person back. You better seek revenge. There will be no justice unless that person is hurting worse than you. They're, they're the seeds of doubts. They're the schemes of the evil one. And the heart gets darker and darker. Or it might just be by the lies we hear and feel and sense. Look, no one knows what you're doing. No one will see you. You won't be caught. You're behind closed doors. No one will see what you do on your computer or at work or at home. You're not hurting anyone. It's okay. Just go for it. You see, the lies, it is cunning. Or it could be the seductive words. You know, at, at home, your wife, she doesn't really appreciate you, but at work, you've got that lady, that secretary. She appreciates you. She praises you for your hard work. She sees all that you're doing, and you like spending time with her. Maybe you should. Maybe you should just love because you're meant to love anyway. Perhaps it's easier, and maybe you should, just love where love is appreciated. You see, those seeds of thoughts in the heart, in the mind, it is cunning. The devil works in ways that it schemes. It's not like we face this battle where the devil faces us with pitchforks and horns, and he comes to us and, and he comes with, here is greed, here is adultery, here is lust, here is pride, take it and embrace it. No one's going to do that. But he's cunning, you see. He schemes, he plants those seeds of thoughts in our hearts and minds. And so he schemes and battles even in the heavenly places we see here against God himself. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's fighting God himself. Which means the powers of the evil one is vast and comprehensive. And so, to deny his existence is to underestimate him. To think that we cannot be tempted to think that we cannot be seduced, to think that we cannot be influenced, is to underestimate the power of the evil one. And that's what Paul is warning us of here. But of course that does not mean that we get crippled. We need to be crippled or paralyzed by fear. We are not to underestimate the devil, nor are we to overestimate him. You see, for the forces of evil, the forces of darkness, though it is still raging, he has already been defeated. The devil, demons, the demonic forces have already been defeated. And how? 
It was by Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. When he died, he broke the power of sin. He broke the power of evil and of death and of Satan. It's not like this battle depends on us at all, because who are we? The war has already been won by Jesus, though the battle still rages against the disciples of Jesus. It's won. The war is over, but the battle still rages. It's a bit like what happened after World War II. Now, do you remember when World War II ended? It was 1945. But to one Japanese soldier, Haru, this guy, Haru Onoda, the war didn't end for him until 1974, which is 29 years after the end of the war. And so even though the Japanese have already been defeated, they've surrendered, Lieutenant Onoda, he kept on fighting in the jungles of the Philippines. He did not believe that the Japanese would have been defeated. He kept on fighting. The war was over, but the battle for him was still raging. And so the devil, though he has lost at the cross of Christ, rather than conceding defeat, rather than surrendering, knowing now that he cannot win, he's venting his anger and rage. The skirmishes are still happening. He's still wrestling. And there's no ceasefire until Jesus returns. And so, against whom is he raging? Well, he's raging against everyone. Our world sees his influences each and every day. Turn on the news, and it's the influences, the temptation, the seduction of the evil one against everyone. But it's more fierce against the church. Because who are the church? They are the people of God whom have been already snatched away from the grasp of the evil one. And now we belong to God. And he wants to gather us back. He wants, us, he wants to tear us down, rip us apart. And in church history, you see his impact. You see his influences. His, you see his destruction upon the church. Look at church history. Even look at today, the state of the church. How many churches are there who have succumbed to the influences of culture and society? If churches are just like the world, it means that the devil has won. You see, churches where same-sex marriage is okay, even approved and affirmed. Churches with their investments would invest in, in short investments like gambling. Churches where it's rife with greed and consumerism. How many churches are like that? Or how many churches started off as schisms? There was division in the church rather than starting off as a good, well-intentioned gospel church plant just because Christians can't get along. That is the influence and the impact and the destruction of the evil one. Or how many churches see little or no growth because ungodliness and malice and gossip is allowed to run rife in the church? Is that not the devil's work? tearing down, ripping apart. It's no wonder why Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once said this, he said, I'm certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. So easy, isn't it? Just to live life, to go with the flow, to flow with the seasons, to forget 
We are in a battle, and it is against the devil. But of course, this is the church God protects. And so be armed and ready with the armour of God. You see, the devil is beyond our league. We cannot fight him alone. We can't fight him with our own strength. We need God. And so look at verse 13. Put on the full arm of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now notice there what we're called to. We're not called to advance. We're not called to take on more ground, for the war has already been won. We are called here just to stand, to stand our ground, to stand firm, to not give any ground to the devil at all, to not allow him to take a foothold in our church. And so how does God protect his church? Well, well now we read a list of six pieces of armour. It doesn't really look like much. It's what the Roman soldiers would wear back 2,000 years ago. It doesn't look like much in modern warfare. I mean, if you have a, a dozen soldiers with machine guns, you can take down a thousand Roman soldiers easily. But you see, this is the armour that God himself wears. It's laden with Old Testament imagery. You see, in the Old Testament, it is God or his Messiah who's often portrayed as the warrior, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. They were God's armour. And so what is Paul telling us to put on? Not an armour we make up ourselves. It is to put on God's own armour. And so let's have a look at this. First, the belt of truth, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What does that mean? It means that Christians, we are to be champions of the truth. That is doctrinal truth. Truth in what we believe about God, about the world, about us, about the gospel. But I think he speaks also of personal truth. That is our character, our honesty, our integrity. We are to be champions of the truth. And the truth protects us from the lies of the evil one. Lies that God is not good or God is not loving. I'm not going to believe that. I've got the belt of truth. I know God is good. You might try to tempt me into believing that. I won't. Lies that the gospel is not enough, that you need to work for your salvation, that you need to be good so that God would love you. That is a lie. I will not believe that. I've got the belt of truth. Lies that I can live life to the full without God. That is a lie. I will not believe that. And so we are to fasten on the belt of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. That is to protect our core from blows and arrows. Now this firstly is, is speaking about righteousness in the sense of us having a right relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. That is my breastplate. And so Satan might try to accuse me to, to seduce me into thinking that I'm not safe. I, I'm not okay with God, but I've got the breastplate of righteousness. God is my father. I am his child. I am safe. 
But here I think again it speaks of our own personal righteousness, the life that we are called to live, to be like God my Father, blameless and holy in all my conduct, my character, my behaviour, my speech, so that if there are any accusations that comes my way, slanderous attacks, mud that is thrown on me, they just won't stick because I'm protected by the breastplate of righteousness. Third, we see here the sandals of peace. Verse 15 now. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That is to put on sandals, being ready always to declare the gospel of peace, that you, this fallen world, can have life with God. You can have peace with God. And what happens when we do so? What happens when we proclaim the gospel? What happens when someone who is in the world hears of the gospel and comes to life? What happens? Well, what, ha what is happening is that we're frustrating the evil schemes of the devil as people are rescued from his dominion and brought into the kingdom of light. Fourth, we read here the shield of faith, verse 16. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now what we need to keep in mind here is that the Apostle Paul was speaking not merely to individuals, that you need to bear your shield of faith, lift it up, but to the church, the people of God, as one whole people, one whole body, to all lift up the shield of faith. And so, so the image we're meant to see here is Roman soldiers all on the front line, all with shields protecting everyone behind. It, like one united front, that is what it's meant to look like. So that when the devil fires thoughts of doubt about our salvation, doubts about the goodness of God, doubts that our future home is indeed heaven, doubts that I'm more sinful, that God will never forgive me, doubts that God does not care for me, that's why he's allowing me to suffer this thing. What do I do when those darts of doubts come our way? I hold up the shield of faith. The church together holds up the shield of faith and those fiery darts will be extinguished. Now fifth, the helmet of salvation. It is because it is God's saving power that defends us against any hints of doubt about the assurance of our salvation. The devil, he might try to cause me to fear, to be paralyzed by fear of my future, but I know with the helmet of salvation, the devil cannot snatch me away from the hands of God. I am safe. And now finally, the sword of the Spirit, verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now among all the equipments that we're given, this is the only one that can be used for attack as well as defense. And the word for sword is not those big, huge, long swords used by gladiators. The, the word for sword is a, a short, sharp one. Now what does that tell us about the type of battle we're in? If it's a short, sharp sword, it's up close and personal. It will be up close and personal. And so what is the sword of the Spirit? Well, it's the Word of God. And what does that mean? Does it mean that we hold our Bibles around everywhere and if the devil faces us, we just whack him with the thick black Bible? Well, of course not. 
What does it mean? It's the message of the Word of God. They are the promises of the Word of God. It is the message of what Jesus has done for us in the cross, in his death and resurrection. And that was how Jesus himself defended himself from the temptations of Satan in the desert. You remember that story? Satan was tempting him, trying to seduce him with power, with pride. And what did Jesus do? Well, he used the word of God. He said, man does not live on, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Which means to be fortified well as a church. To be fortified well as Christians in all the squirmishes and battles. It means we have to be fortified with the word of God. With the word of God. We read it. We study it. We understand it. We meditate on it. We believe it. We proclaim it. We teach it. We use it. We are to be fortified for this is our only weapon, the sword of the Spirit, and it is a powerful weapon. So that is the armour of God. But now finally, the last point, all is useless if we forget to pray, to depend on God, for we must always remember our own limitations. It is not willpower that will protect us. It is our prayer and dependence in God. So verse 18, we must pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. You see, Satan will always try to limit our praying because he knows that our praying will limit him. We are in a battle and it is against the devil. And so what must we do as a church? as the people belonging to God. Well, if we are to stand firm and to stand firm together, to not lose ground, we are to be armed and ready by donning on the full armour of God. Which means as Christians we can never be complacent. We must always be vigilant, never letting down our guard because every single second of the day a dart can be shot our way. Something can be coming to our mind or heart. You see, when it's easy, wherever you're living, whatever stage of life you're in, a teenager, someone at university, someone who's working, at home, at work, in the retirement home, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever stage you're in, darts will be coming our way. And so when it's easy to lie, and it will be often very easy to lie. Will I speak the truth always or will I lie? When we're pressured to compromise on our faith, do I shy away? Do I even not let my friends know that I'm a Christian? Do I not defend other Christians? I mean, that story about the rugby player Israel Falau again pressured in all sorts of ways so easy for him just to give in and to apologize for saying what is true so do we do we avoid believing parts of the bible because it's difficult or do we stand firm uncompromised in our faith or when there are fiery darts of doubts and fears do we 
allow it to penetrate our minds? Do we allow it to penetrate our hearts so that we might even be tempted to throw in our faith? You see, for you and for me to remain firm as Christians, grounded in the gospel, grounded in what God teaches us so firmly, so clearly, so powerfully, for you and I to be people of honesty, for you and I to be people of integrity, of righteousness, even if it costs, even if it costs us, for you and I to stand firm, that teenager, you who are teenager in your secular school, when your faith is ridiculed and mocked, you in the business world where it's cutthroat, where your integrity and honesty is challenged, and the rest of us in this godless world where the battle is intense, what do we need? We need the armour of God. We need the armour of God to stand firm. It was the Puritan minister, William Gurnall, in the 1600s, he said this, In heaven we shall appear not in armour, but in robes of glory. But he, they, that is the arm of God, are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. And so the question of that pastor at the beginning, are you in the army of the Lord? It is a good question, and we must be. And then he went on to say, the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. But this is the church God protects. And of course we need to remember that the battle does not depend on us. The war has already been won, for we have a commanding officer, one who has already gone out in front. We have a general who has already marched out ahead, a saviour, a king, Jesus Christ, who has already given up his life so that the war against evil, against death, against Satan is won already. It is already won for us by our king, our chief, our general. But now as his followers, as his soldiers, we don on the full arm of God. Just like that hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle the next, the victor's song. To those who vanquish evil, a crown of life shall be. They, with the king of glory, shall reign eternally. That's what we do. We stand up. We stand up for Christ. Let's pray.